Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions, I think, on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Cyber hackers hit our beef, retail frenzy hits our meme stocks, but it's still all about our jobs. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Today, as I say, it really is all about U.S. jobs numbers. 559,000 jobs were created, but that was less than expected. And let's be honest, there's a lot of people still out of work. This is what President Biden earlier today had to say about the jobs numbers. Today, we received great news for our economy and our recovery and for the American people. This morning, we learned that in May, our economy created 559,000 new jobs. Unemployment rate fell to 5.8 percent, and wages went up for American workers. To give us her analysis, we welcome now Constance Hunter, KPMG chief economist. So, so Constance, it's good we added almost 600,000 jobs. That's a good thing. At the same time, there are a lot of people still without jobs who had them before the pandemic. Why isn't it coming back faster? Well, we think that the pandemic is the main reason. It's causing speed bumps. So if we look into the details of the report from the BLS, something from the household survey showed that 7.9 million workers um, were not at their job site because of closure due to the pandemic. So they're still employed, but they weren't able to go to work during the survey week due to the pandemic. Um, When we look at the percent of working age adults that were that had not received even one shot uh, at the time that the survey was taken it's 48 percent of working age adults so we think the pandemic is really holding back the pace of recovery even though we've made huge progress even though you know we've seen some surges in jobs gains like we had in march uh, the pandemic's really creating speed bumps here 
for the pace of jobs growth and the pace of the recovery overall. Constance, do we have any sense from the numbers about whether it makes a difference whether you can work from home or whether you have to be in in person? Do we have a sense of the unemployment rate between those two? Yes, that's one of my favorite indicators that we calculate. So if you can work from home, the unemployment rate is 2.8%. So that's pretty close to full employment. And we look at a sector like financial services. It doesn't employ a lot of people, but wages are up three times what they are for the overall population. So over 6% wage increases. So there's high demand for those workers. Um, and there's a real labor market tightness in that portion of the labor market. If you can work from your job site, your unemployment rate, or you have to work from your job site rather, your unemployment rate is closer to 6%. And um, we still see though some real friction in that part of the labor market. Um, and again, we think this is largely due to the pandemic itself. People are reluctant to go back to work. And if we look at leisure and hospitality, for example, it makes up 10% of the work of the jobs. And um, we saw 50% of these jobs added this month came in that sector. So roaring back, but people's reservation wage is higher, right? So we've seen strong month over month gains in leisure and hospitality. And if we look on a 12 month moving average to just kind of take out some of the noise of the base effects, we're up 2.4% year over year on these wages. But let's remember these are very low paying jobs. Constance, as we know, women and people of color were particularly hard hit when it comes to jobs coming out of the pandemic. How are we doing on that from these numbers? Are they starting to come back? Yeah, we saw a nice improvement for women, a little over 400,000 um, uh, jobs coming back. And, you know, again, women we know were a little bit more hard hit in terms of home responsibilities, whether it's uh, online school or additional uh, food preparation. And so uh, there were women who dropped out of the labor force in larger numbers. Um, during the pandemic. And um, and we know the leisure and hospitality sector, the education sector disproportionately hires more women. So of course, more women were impacted. We just heard President Biden talk about wage increases. What are we learning about wage increases? Is there an indication of wage inflation yet? So it depends on the sector, right? So I would say that we, we've talked about this K-shaped recovery and I our last chart book looked at the, what we call the disequilibrium that we see in the economy, both on the supply side and the demand side. And so in terms of um, that disequilibrium and how it impacts wages, the work from home uh, worker is a very tight labor market. And we wouldn't be surprised to see some more pressures, wage pressures in that part of the market due to real labor market tightness. Um, in the areas where we see pandemic-induced uh, frictions and reluctance to work, we do expect those sectors to work through that over the next couple of months. And so while employers do have to offer a bit more money to entice people back while we still have these pandemic speed bumps, we don't think that that is necessarily a situation where that is going to need to occur year after year. So we're adding jobs at a healthy clip, maybe not as fast as we'd like. We still have a lot of people sitting on the sidelines. At the same time, we have record numbers of open jobs. Uh, so is that just a matter of time to get over what you call a speed bump? Or might there be something more structural there? Uh, we've read, for example, about a lot of people deciding just to take early retirement. They may not cut back. 
Yeah, so if you look at the labor force participation rate for the people over age 55, we basically lost 2 million people um, at the start of the pandemic. And, um, you know, TBD, if all of those people end up coming back, what we did learn from the last cycle, though, is that even after people drop out of the labor force, sometimes if we have a long uh, period of, of consistent jobs growth, which we had a record experience coming out of the global financial crisis, then we do he seemed to draw people back into the labor market. So some of those people may be out of the labor market for now or even the next year or two. But if the job market stays strong, um, it's very possible they could be pulled back in. But this is, of course, one of the great unknowns and a really um, important factor in figuring out how much labor market tightness there is going to be, let's say, six months to a year from now. Constance, thank you so very much for being with us today. That's Constance Hunter. She's KPMG Chief Economist. Coming up, AMC shoots the lights out. But are these meme stocks anything more than evidence of the asset bubble that we've been warned about? That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The meme stock rally has a new king. Shares of AMC skyrocketed by more than 100% during Wednesday's wild trading session, pushing its total gains for the year to nearly 3,000%. To thank its retail investors, AMC is offering a new rewards program for its stockholders, which includes free popcorn, and exclusive screenings. Here's Steve Sosnick from Interactive Brokers. As Bitcoin and other cryptos have faded a bit, you've seen a lot of excitement go back into the meme stocks. On Tuesday, AMC announced that it had raised $230 million by selling 8.5 million shares to Mudrick Capital. By the end of the day, the hedge fund dumped its AMC position, calling the stock overvalued. I think we should be very worried. I think we're living through a period of, of an asset mania, of a market mania. I don't think that's complicated. I think that's what we're seeing. I don't know how long it'll last, um, but I think we should be very worried about it. That's Peter Fisher from the Dartmouth Tuck School. It wasn't just an equity position. Mudrick Capital also profited from buying AMC bonds at a discount and converting part of its stake into equity earlier this year. The hedge fund also loaned $100 million to AMC last year when theater closures threatened to push the company into bankruptcy. Here's Ben Eifert, the founder of QVR Advisors. If anything, you're likely to see the company 
taking advantage of this environment to raise cash in the equity market, dilute its shareholders, and pay down its very heavy debt load. The dizzying rally hasn't changed the fundamentals of AMC's money-losing theater business. Even as life returns to normal, analysts expect AMC to lose nearly $100 million over the next 12 months. As the stock rallied, the movie theater chain saw its long-term debt nearly triple in just the first three months of this year. I think markets are looking at, continue to look at what happens after the pandemic actually ends. What will valuations look like for companies like GameStop and AMC who are near bankruptcy? That's Ben Emans from Medley Global. In January, the Reddit army compelled hedge funds to slash their short exposure quickly to the lowest in five years. And Citroen Research abandoned its long-standing practice of publishing short-seller reports. Here's Citroen's Andrew Left. So as of today, Citroen Research will no longer be publishing what can be considered as short-selling reports. It's exciting to watch these meme stocks as they skyrocket up, fall back down to earth, and often skyrocket back up again. But the real question is, does it have any larger significance, at least beyond the four corners of the stock being involved? Well, fortunately, we have someone with some answers to that question. He is Peter Atwater of Financial Insight. So is there a significance to things like AMC and what we saw this week? Is there a significance that goes beyond the four corners of that stock? Yeah, I I think there are a couple of things, David, that are very significant to this. Um, The first is that we only tend to see this kind of behavior when the retail investor um, is is drawn into things like a a moth to to a light um, at the very tail end of the the investment cycle. So the fact that we've now seen one flash mob with money after another suggests to me that we're getting towards the end of an asset bubble. And that's significant to me. And the other aspect, particularly for AMC, is that the the tone of this is very different from what we saw when you and I spoke earlier this year about GameStop. GameStop was a market stopper. Everybody was focused on it. People were drawn into it. There was an energy to it that I don't think is the same today. This this feels like one asset bubble too many from a stock investor's perspective. And I think the danger here, which AMC disclosed in its filing, is that those who get in this week run the risk of seeing a trail of tears ahead. So if the asset bubble does in fact burst here, what comes next? Because there's still an awful lot of liquidity in the marketplace. Doesn't that money have to go someplace? Yeah, I think that there there are a couple of implications to this. One is I, I wouldn't underestimate how angry this retail crowd is likely to become. And you know they, they've made a lot of money, but there's also this undercurrent of egalitarianism, of sticking it to the man. And I think that if we see price this price rise bubble you know collapse, then I think we run the risk of the crowd deciding that the real money to be made is on the short side. Or even more significant, particularly for policymakers, is the risk that they move into the commodity space. And there, rising prices, as you know, have an enormous impact on the economy and what that means for inflation in the Fed. The commodity space is much bigger than even the equity space in the United States as a practical matter. That's a lot of money globally. Are they big enough to make a difference in the commodity space? I, I think they are. I mean, you, you look at the, the ETFs that are very small in that space on a relative basis, um, you know, we've not seen the retail investor get into this the way we have institutions. 
And so, you know, much like we've seen with, with these meme stocks, I wouldn't underestimate the, the force of the crowd, particularly in an environment where everyone's sentiment towards inflation is the same. And that is that the fear of rising inflation feeds upon itself. How much of this is because of a structural change in the marketplace? It seems like the barriers to entry, if I can put it that way, for retail investors have gone down. I mean, we can do it instantaneously on our smartphone now. You can do it for free with no commission, things like that. How much of it is just structural? And therefore, is it really up to the regulators to do anything about it? I think there are three aspects of this. First is we financialized everything. So the ability to invest, you know, short, long, in anything these days is extraordinary, like never before. We have NFTs and cryptocurrencies, and you know we, we've all but monetized you and me. The, the second aspect is that the, the, the tools, as you suggest, are ever present. So our smartphones are giving us 24-7 access to the markets. And the third aspect is that we have a generation that has been raised on video games. So you've got gamification. And I think those three together have created this fabulous casino. But one of the things that sticks in my mind, having done a lot of history reading, was the Panic of 1857. And the thing that historians write about that is that it was faster than any panic they'd seen before. And you read further, well, why? Well, it was the telegraph. Technology created an extraordinary change in the speed at which things happened and the, and the size of the, the investor community. And I think for policymakers, that risk today, I think is underestimated. We, we have a broader investment community in larger scale globally now with 24 seven access in their hand. And I don't think we know yet what that means in a falling market. Okay, Peter Atwater of Financial Insight, thank you so much for joining us today. Coming up, hacking into the largest meat producer in the world, the latest in what is becoming an epidemic of assaults on our supply chains and infrastructure with Sam Palmasano, former CEO of IBM. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Last week, it was the biggest pipeline in the country. This week, it was the largest meat producer in the whole wide world, both hit by cyber attacks, both apparently originating in Russia. And it is a real clear and present danger to the United States of America. The question is, what do we need to do about it? Sam Palmasano was the longtime CEO of IBM. He's also co-chair of the Cyber Renaissance Institute, and I'm delighted to say he's here with us now. So Sam, give us your reaction to this spate, maybe even an epidemic of cyber attacks. Where are we, where are we going? Well, David, thank you for having me today. Clearly, they've accelerated. I mean, they've always were a serious problem that we face in the country as far as protecting the infrastructure, but they're certainly accelerating. And they're moving beyond, let's call it government agencies and large enterprises, to now small businesses and state and local that are the most vulnerable. And that's why you see, I think, the volume picking up. 
because it's a, basically it's an easy way to extort money from companies who are who don't have the robust systems of a large bank or a large technology company and those types. I know you've told me before that one of the biggest vulnerabilities are the small and medium-sized companies, and for that matter, state and local governments, because as you yeah. say, they don't have the same resources. What do we do to combat that particular vulnerability? Well, we, I mean, we if I go back to the Obama Commission, David, that we were all served on, we called that as the largest vulnerability, but we also understood that we get the least attention as compared to large complex enterprises. But the first thing that a small business or a state local government can do, there's really four simple things that this would give them much more defense than they have today. One is back up your systems and your data and disconnect that network from your other networks. So it's actually secure and resilient. So you can, re so once you get hacked, you can recover quickly. It shouldn't take a week or two. It actually should take hours, quite honestly. It should not take as long as it takes. Secondarily, how they get in is through the networks. It's called phishing. Uh, so therefore, educate your employees or your workforce why you should not respond to these weird emails that you might see in your system. That's their access point. And then lastly, just have strong authentication so that knows it's you, that a person that's entering, as well as robust passwords. If you do those four things, then you will get rid of 80 or 90% of the hacks that actually occur. I mean, that's how they get into those systems. The other thing you need to do is patch your software immediately because they see the software patches because they're all online and they know how the vulnerabilities of the systems, that's another entry point. So if they could just do those things, they would be much more secure. Now, I don't expect them all to remember this, but you mentioned the Cyber Readiness Institute. If they just look up on the internet, it's a nonprofit, all these tools are free, all this stuff, all they have to do is download it and we'll give them the tools and the help and the aids they need to do this, either state and local or small business. It's all there, it's on the, it's on the internet. So that makes eminently good sense to me, at least. Everyone should be doing that. But as a practical one, not everybody will do it. That's sort of from bottom up. What about from top down? I mean, now I'm going back in time as the co-chair or the vice chair, I should say, with Tom Donnellan, who was national security advisor to President Obama. Uh, we said then there's no consistent strategy from government that, that, that includes all parties. Clearly, the private sector has to be included. One, they're the, the victims of the attacks, plus they have the skills and the expertise. And if you look at it today, uh, there is not a strategy. Now, I, I have to admit that President Obama, I mean, President Biden, rather, has actually signed and implemented an executive order, which does address a lot of the shortcomings companies we recommended years ago. But, but still, the point is there really isn't a strategy and there's not a coordination point. Now, I could get into things like the military and things like that. But from the civilian side of government, there's not a strategy or a coordination point. Uh, we have, I think, uh, the best tech sector par excellence. You were an important part of it when you were at IBM. So, so how can we tap into that? I mean, we've got the best and the brightest in the world, don't we, or don't we? No, we do. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and clearly, when there's a crisis, people tend to co cooperate. But what they don't do is get ahead of the problem. And by that, I mean, it's, it's multiple things that need to be addressed as far as the use of the technology to make the Internet more resilient. And a lot of that's going to require collaboration. I mean, government sets the priorities, sets the budgets for the agencies and the appropriate organizations. The private sector will certainly respond. Uh, I worked for years on the uh, NSA Cyber Command Center with General Alexander, and we all responded to those requests. But there needs to be coordination and some level of funding within the government agencies. Because 
no different than small business and state and local. They're underfunded. They don't have the resources to do this. And so that's a part of the challenge that they face. What kind of funding are we talking about? I was going to ask the question, do we need to spend more money on this, invest more money? If you would look at it from the private sector lens, I would say no, because there's so much inefficiency in government. I'll give you an example. I added them up once when I was working. Michael Dell and I added it up. There were over 6,000 data centers to, to operate the government. You don't need 6,000 data centers. I mean, it, you probably need a couple, but let's make it fit, make it 102 per state, like military bases, and keep everybody happy on the Hill. That would save hundreds of, hundreds of billions of dollars. Many thanks to Wall Street Week contributor Sam Palmisano. Coming up, China makes an about face on how many children its families should have. What does that tell us about its economic future and what it needs to do to compete with the United States? We ask Neil Ferguson of the Hoover Institution. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. China this week made a big step. It said that couples could have as many as three children rather than two, really as part of its ongoing effort to maintain historic competition with the United States in the economy as it tries to have its economy overtake that of the United States. We are joined now by economic historian Neil Ferguson, who is the author of a new book, brand new book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. Also, of course, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. So, Neil, thank you so much for being back with us. You've looked in your book through history at various catastrophes and as important how the human race has responded to those catastrophes. Let's look at the most recent one, the pandemic, and contrast, if you will, China versus the United States. How did we handle it differently? How do we handle the same? Who did it better? Well, throughout history, catastrophes are a kind of moment of revelation. You find out what a system is made of, how resilient the society is. And COVID's been no exception. Last year, a lot of people jumped to the conclusion that China had somehow aced this and the United States had uh, completely screwed up. And uh, it certainly looked a little like that because the Chinese were able to bring the spread of the pandemic under control. It never really went exponential beyond the province of Hubei. And we, of course, are on our way to 600,000 deaths. Uh, and it appeared as if we simply couldn't contain the spread, even with lockdowns. But, you know, I couldn't help feeling last year that this was probably a premature judgment. 
uh, and that we were maybe missing the fund fundamental vulnerabilities that the pandemic exposed in China and some of the strengths that the United States uh, still has. And I'll give you just two quick examples. Let's not forget this thing began in China. We thought of it as a natural disaster. It increasingly looks man-made, though we can't be certain if this was a lab leak in Wuhan. It seems plausible, even if it wasn't. Only in a one-party communist dictatorship would it have been possible to hush up the facts of human-to-human -human spread in the way that happened in December 2019 into January 2020. In a democracy, the press would have reported on this, and there never would have been such a huge pandemic. Remember, for weeks, this virus was traveling as the Chinese Lunar New Year approached all over the world, including directly on flights from Wuhan to San Francisco and, and New York. The second point is, although we tend to start badly in a crisis, remember Pearl Harbor? The United States has a remarkable capacity for self-repair. And although things went very badly wrong last year, and I don't deny all kinds of mistakes were made, on the most important thing you can do in a pandemic, which is developing really efficacious vaccines, the US, and broadly speaking, the West, did much, much better than China. So, Neil, uh, we heard from President Biden his first uh, press conference, actually, saying that ultimately he regards this as a battle, was the word he used, between democracies and autocracies in the 21st century. Uh, take what you've just said here. It was thought for some time China had the advantage because it was so centralized. It could get its people to do things the United States couldn't. Look at the United States. We had states really disagreeing about how to handle it, a lot of back and forth. Do we have any sense about whether the United States needs to be more centralized? Because the Biden administration right now is moving I think it's fair to say, towards centralization, certainly in economic policy. Well, I half agree with Joe Biden. I agree that we are in a fundamental struggle uh, against a totalitarian, not just authoritarian, but totalitarian state. The Chinese Communist Party in many ways runs uh, China much the same way that the Soviet Communist Party ran the Soviet Union. They have a different economic strategy. The politics is the same. The ideology is the same. The repression is the same. The labor camps for minorities are remarkably similar. So I agree that we're in something that looks quite a lot like Cold War II. And I think it already was going that way before the pandemic struck. The pandemic revealed some things about the Chinese regime that many people had been in denial about. Uh, but, but I don't wholly agree uh, with Joe Biden that the way to go is to copy what China does. It's very striking that plan features in all the major legislation uh, that the Biden administration is bringing forward. We've got three big multi-year plans. Remind you of anything? It's also interesting that the Biden administration seems to be looking over its shoulder and saying, the Chinese are doing a central bank digital currency, shouldn't we? And I also think, and this is a really important point, David, that last year we made a mistake. We thought that we needed to copy the Chinese style of lockdown after the virus had really spread uh, through uh, to every state. But we were looking at the wrong China. The China that really did the best last year was Taiwan, the Republic of China, which is a democracy, uh, has uh, great protections for individual rights, nevertheless was able to contain the spread of COVID until a very recent outbreak. But last year, basically, they completely contained it uh, without lockdowns. So I think we made a great mistake and we're still making it. We think we have to copy China, but no, no, no. Democracy has great strengths that a centralized one-party state lacks. And one of the really great lessons of the 20th century, and it was true in both World War II and the Cold War, is you, you mustn't become your enemy 
in attempting to compete with your enemy, because that is not victory. If you become a centralized uh, state uh, without the individual liberties that are crucial to democracy, what kind of a victory is that? Neil, let's take your analysis and apply it to one very specific issue very much on everybody's mind right now, and that's infrastructure. Because a lot of people look at China and say, boy, they really know how to do infrastructure. I've been on those high-speed rails you have that they built in the time it would have required to get permits in the United States. We would have never gotten it built. Uh, at the same time, some people are saying the Biden approach to infrastructure is flawed because it is top-down, it is federal, and you need it really originating from the localities that know what they need. In infrastructure, do we need to go more central? I don't think necessarily that we we do, and I, I certainly think it would be a great mistake to think that that we need to be China, complete with high speed railing. Sometimes I think we get an exaggerated impression of the state of our infrastructure because we base our commentary on the potholes in New York and Boston uh, rather than looking at the country as a whole. Remember. Uh, the U.S. today runs on a remarkable uh, and, and hugely successful infrastructure program that dates back to the Eisenhower era, and that was when the interstates were built. Now, we knew how to do infrastructure then, just as we knew how to do enormous leaps forward in defense technology. We've definitely got worse at that compared with the 1950s. And an illustration of this, perfect illustration really, is the chronic inability of the Californian state to sort out its many infrastructure problems. It can't uh, build a rail link. It can't even sort out its chronic problems of, of water shortage. So I, I think we need to address our frailties. And I've been talking about our degeneration uh, in these respects for many years, but not by becoming China. Rather, we have to recognize that we've created an excessively complex regulatory system that stands in the way of, uh, of local and, and state initiatives that everybody on the ground knows are necessary. But you know, good luck dealing, to take just another Californian example, with the problem of, of wildfires, because the regulations on the environment make it impossible to do controlled burns. So I don't think we need to learn from China. I think we need to learn from America. Let's look back at our great days when we really knew how to do infrastructure programs. Look back on the 1950s, or even look back on the Manhattan Project. Think of one of the great technological leaps forward of all time. We used to be able to innovate uh, through federal programs at an incredible clip without getting bogged down in immense amounts of bureaucracy and regulation. We need to get back to that much more nimble federal government that we had in the days of Dwight Eisenhower. And finally, Neil, this is Bloomberg and this is Wall Street Week. So let's say as an investor, let's assume you're going to invest in China versus the United States over the next 10 years. Given everything you've said, everything you know about these two regimes, which is a better bet in a better investment over the next 10 years? Well, I'm an economic historian. I take the long view and you'd be mad to bet against the United States. You'd also be mad to bet on a totalitarian, highly centralized regime in, in a networked age. Let me put it really simply. Most of America understands that it's heading for Cold War. The part of America that doesn't get this is Wall Street. Money's pouring into Chinese bonds and stocks, especially tech stocks. Guys, I have bad news for you. They have capital controls. It's the Hotel California China style. You may be able to check in, but good luck checking out. So I think this this is a really important long bet that Wall Street is making that is going to go very sour. And it could go sour too if there's a blow up between the US and China over Taiwan. Neil, it's always such a pleasure to have you with us. That's Neil Ferguson. He's senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and author of Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. Finally, one more thought. Make me an offer. 
A year ago, we were desperate for a vaccine we were promised, but that experts doubted could get here for years to come. And then the miracle happened, giving us not one, but several alternatives and offering us the keys to get out of the jails that our homes had become. And after rationing those shots in the early months, we now have a new challenge, getting up to that 70% goal and getting everyone vaccinated. With President Biden using his bully pulpit every way that he can to get us there by his July 4 deadline. We're announcing a month long effort to pull all the stops, all the stops to free ourselves from this virus and get to 70% of adult Americans vaccinated. But let's be honest here. People may listen to the president, but they're motivated. They're really motivated by more tangible incentives. And that's what we're seeing right across the country, with various states offering cold, hard cash. Ohio started a lottery that has already paid out $1 million to someone who got vaccinated. California announced a range of cash prices up to $1.5 million. And New Mexico thus far getting the prize by saying one of its citizens will get $5 million for getting vaccinated. But this is, after all, a team effort, right? I get vaccinated to protect myself from getting COVID, but I also get vaccinated to protect you from catching it from me. And so Anheuser-Busch this week announced the mother of all vaccine incentive programs, one in which every single American can win if we get to that 70% mark. That's right. Get a shot and have a beer. Free beer for everyone 21 years or over to celebrate the independence from the virus. So for all of you who haven't gotten your shot yet, you may be the one standing between all of us and a cold bud. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.